If you could please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that we may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is God's word. Amen. Well, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the book of 2 Corinthians as we begin our time together there this morning in prayer. God, we are grateful again this morning for your word and the ways in which you speak to us today, 2,000 years later than it was written. We pray that you would do that this morning, that you would help us to recognize the ways in which you are at work in our lives, to bless us and to bless those around us by remaking us, by giving us new life, redeemed and righteous character that reflects your glory and your grace. We pray that you would do that work even this morning as we read and learn from this passage. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, most of us in this room, at some point or another in our lives, have been through the awkward process of a job interview. The employer is trying to learn as much about you as they can in a relatively short amount of time. So it's not like most conversations that we have in life. Seven years ago, when I was flown out to visit Westgate to interview uh, for the position as the youth pastor here, uh, it was certainly unlike most job interviews that I was familiar with. Now, this one was three days long. It involved meetings with the elders, the other pastors, parents, youth volunteers, and lots of students. I was asked lots of questions about doctrine and philosophy of ministry and important topics like that. But one question that I was asked, I think, in every meeting was, what do you think about Tom Brady, though? <laughs> I think I was pretty close to being put on a bus out of town when I said, I think I'd rather eat a car tire than see him win another Super Bowl. <laughs> but even if your job interview is not three days long, it doesn't involve eighth graders shouting at you about your thoughts on the Patriots, job interviews are still almost always awkward because you're in a situation where you're trying to sell yourself and the company or employer or whatever is uh, interested in whether or not it's in their best interest to hire you before someone else does. But it would be weird to say in a job interview, I have a great work ethic, I'm driven, I'm focused, I'm a team player, I have a great personality and everyone loves to work with me 
and I know literally everything there is to know about this profession. I am the complete package. <laughs> Saying that in a job interview might not have the effect that you hope for. The goal is to convince the interviewer that you are the right person for this job while avoiding giving the idea that you think you're the only person who could do this job because that would make you look like a narcissist. In some ways, I think that a job interview, the concept of a job interview, helps us understand what's happening here in this passage in 2 Corinthians. Paul has gotten word that rival teachers in the city have been trying to undermine his leadership there. They've criticized his lack of rhetorical training and skill, his humble appearance, and his lack of material wealth. They've tried to convince people that because he works for a living rather than living in luxury, he must not be trustworthy, and his wisdom must not be worthwhile, because look at where it's gotten him in life. So in various ways that we've already seen so far in this letter, he's responded to these comments and criticisms. And here in this passage, he takes a moment to explain the very heart of his ministry in this city, what makes him trustworthy, and why the people there ought to listen to what he has to say. It's as if he's reapplying for the job alongside lots of other would-be pastors and teachers, working to convince them that they ought to listen to him and to believe the message of salvation that he has been proclaiming in the city of Corinth. It's an interesting situation for him to be in because he's made clear in this letter and in the letter of 1 Corinthians that he is not driven in this life by fame or honor or prestige. He's not all about making much of himself. In his letter to the Philippian church, he addresses other rival teachers there who are preaching the gospel, he says, by selfish ambition or for selfish ambition, not sincerely, but seeking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. While Paul was locked up, other teachers had come along to take advantage of Paul's absence by trying to build their own empires, their own followings. And Paul says in response to this, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. His aim in life is that the gospel is preached, that people are saved, and not that he is the one that is honored for doing it. He's not here to make a name for himself, and it's not as, it's not as though he thinks that he's the only one who could do the work. So, this is an awkward situation for him to be in. Writing to the Corinthians, explaining to them that these other teachers are suspect, that they are not trustworthy, and that it is in their own best interest to listen to Paul. But in these few verses, he makes his case, not by cataloging his accomplishments, though that list would be impressive. He points to something else, that from his very core, he is devoted to Christ, that the gospel has changed who he is from the inside out, he makes that case not with sophisticated rhetoric, though he does that elsewhere, or by clever apologetics, though he does that too. He doesn't even talk about how he was specifically called by Christ himself to share the gospel in places like Corinth. He doesn't do any of that in this passage. Instead, he points to the way that the gospel is proved in his heart, his mind, and his life. That is why he's qualified and why these other teachers are not. The urgency of the moment is clear, and Paul spells it out in verse 10. We must all appear, he says, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
He is driven by the knowledge that a day is coming when these people, the people of the city of Corinth, will stand before Christ, who is their judge. That's a reminder that ought to startle them and to get their attention. These other teachers are out here telling people to have, how to have more comfortable lives, how to climb the social ladder, and how to attain wealth and stature in the city. But Paul knows that a day is coming when all of those things will turn to dust, and these people will stand before Christ with none of it. Paul wants these people to be ready for that day. And that will only happen if they hear and believe the gospel. So for Paul, there is no time to lose. He loves these people enough to tell them that judgment is looming, that these other teachers are not going to help them get ready for it, and to meet Jesus in all of his holy righteousness. Paul does not think that he's the only one who could do this job. He's not arrogant. At countless points in his writing, we hear him talk about the good work that other Christians are doing. We see him pray for and respect the elders in local churches. We see him training and sending out Timothy and others to do pastoral work, pastoral work of their own. Paul is not an egomaniac, but from what he's heard about what's happening in Corinth, he simply cannot remain silent. So he says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord is what is in our hearts, and it compels us to be here working to preach the gospel to you and persuade you to trust in it. Fear of the Lord for Paul is not an anxiety. I think we need to understand this phrase, fear of the Lord. Rather than an anxiety, it is a healthy respect for something that, if it is mishandled, can be dangerous. It is this fear, the, the same type of fear, that compels me to drive the speed limit or to turn off the breaker in the breaker box before I work on an electrical outlet in my house. I don't have an irrational fear of getting places quickly or of electrical sockets, but I know that if I don't treat those things with the proper respect, then I put myself in mortal danger. Fear of God keeps us safe because it acknowledges the danger of His holy wrath against our sin, and it drives us to look for His mercy and cling to it. Paul knows all about that mercy and about the sure, lasting, life-giving safety that it offers. And he's here with the Corinthians to persuade them to cast themselves on that mercy alongside him. Unlike these other teachers in Corinth who saw the people of the city as a means to their own end of having a good life and building a, you know, a following and, and having a, a good income, who presented themselves as Christ followers but were really just preaching Corinthian values that were wrapped in a, a thin veneer of Christianity so that they could gain bigger and bigger followings of people eager to hear their prior beliefs validated by the Bible. Paul, on the other hand, was gripped by a fear of the Lord, and longed for these people to hear and believe the undefiled, undiluted, extraordinary gospel that can save them. It is love for these people that constrains him to them. In this passage, he reminds them of what they've already seen in his heart and his mind and his life. They aren't the only things that he points to as ways of confirming his trustworthiness and qualifications for this work, but here in 2 Corinthians 5, they are like his resume, the things that prove the mercy of God is at work. 
and that it is for these people as well. He begins by admitting in verse 11, what we are is known to God. He knows what Scripture teaches, that while people can only see outward appearance, the Lord sees what is in the heart. To the Corinthians, Paul is just another teacher, another person with another philosophy, but he hopes that his heart is evident to the people of the city. He doesn't engage directly with the accusations that have been leveled against him here in this passage. He doesn't make his own accusations about them here in this passage. Instead, he hopes that his character will vindicate him, that they will be able to see beyond his appearance to his heart for Christ and for them. He says in verses 11 and 12, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. He wants these people to be able to say and believe that even though their teacher does not look impressive, even though he works at manual labor to support himself and seems unimpressive by all the standards of their culture, they know what is in his heart, and that is why they listen to him. He says he's giving them cause to boast about him, which is an important word for the Corinthians, because Corinth was a boastful city. In passages that we've already looked at in our study of this book, we've seen how the culture there was dominated by this obsession with a social hierarchy, with reputation and appearances and status and boasting about them all. Paul doesn't have any of those things. He is an itinerant preacher who drifts from town to town, surviving by his work at a trade and dressed in the uniform of a laborer. So it is interesting that Paul, who has none of what the Corinthians consider boastworthy, to say that he is giving them reason to boast about him. In the culture of Corinth, he is someone people would have been embarrassed of and embarrassed for. But he leverages the priorities of their culture for ministry. He knows what makes them tick, and he speaks in a way that he knows they will understand. And Paul and his message are attacked and maligned as they have been and will continue to be. He wants these people to have reason for confidence in them both both him and the message he's preaching, and for them to be able to express that confidence to those who care first and foremost about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. He wants these people to be able to say, you know what, you're right. Paul is dressed like a loser. He doesn't have an impressive job or rhetorical training. He doesn't have a big house or a fleet of servants. He is strange. We know that but we know his heart. It is for Christ, and it is for us. That is the confidence that Paul wants these people to have in him. Firm confidence, not flimsy confidence that's rooted in his, his clothes or, or his house. He hopes that what is in his heart will be clear to these people, and that knowing his heart will cause them to take seriously what he has to say. Secondly, Paul addresses a sincere, the, the, the way that a sincere commitment to the gospel will raise serious questions from people in Corinth about Paul's mind. In his first letter to these people, he says to them that the Christian message of salvation 
rooted in the shame and humiliation and death of God's Son is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. For Jews, it is unthinkable that God would endure such humiliation and the curse of crucifixion. For Gentiles, it is unthinkable that joy and victory and glory could come through such weakness. It is not hard to imagine how the gospel was first received by the people of this city, so driven to acquire more and more, to climb higher and higher, and to have a life that showcases wealth and power. Then, add to that that the messengers of this faith are themselves poor and unimpressive, and then the majority of Christians in the first century were both poor and female, and it is no surprise that the gospel was met in doubt in Corinth where both of those things were seen as signs of suspicion. Christians worship a crucified Savior. They live humble lives, and as church history would ultimately prove, they are often called by God to suffer like their Savior did. To many in the first century, especially in cities like Corinth, those who chose to follow this crucified king were irrational at best and out of their minds at worst. Paul knows that that is many, how many in Corinth, evidently even among the church there, think of him. So he says in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for you. English translations have handled this verse in different ways. The NIV, the NIV says if we are out of our mind. The New American Standard says if we have lost our minds. And some translations say if we are crazy, it is for you. Paul is willing to be ridiculed, and he accepts that that comes with the territory, especially doing ministry in a place like Corinth. He's willing to be thought of as a lunatic for following Christ. And his willingness to endure being ridiculed is driven, as we see in verse 14, by the love of Christ. Either Christ's love for Paul, Paul's love for Christ, or the love of Christ that is flowing through Paul into the lives of these Corinthians, or some mixture of all three of them, because Paul talks about all of them throughout his ministry. All of them are at work here, and it makes him such an anomaly that people there think he is literally out of his mind. Paul knows that living with an utter determination to honor Christ will set him apart from the world around him. He'll prioritize different things, have different ambitions, and will seem like an oddball to everyone who doesn't know Jesus. We see an example of that, a powerful example of that, in one of Paul's most interesting comments to the Corinthian church in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where he wrote, that it can be better to remain unmarried because, he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. Paul himself never married, evidently because he thought that if he did, he wouldn't be able to devote himself completely to the work of preaching and planting churches. He knew that marriage would divide his heart between wife and work and that he would probably have to quit going on missionary journeys that would last months or perhaps years at a time. He wouldn't be able to risk or endure imprisonment or worse for boldly preaching the gospel. Rather than joyfully preaching to guards and fellow prisoners as, as he was imprisoned for preaching, he would have been divided. His heart would have been divided, longing to do that ministry and also grieving that he had been cut off from ministry to his family. 
So he chooses to remain unmarried throughout his lifetime so that he could give his whole life to the work that he had been called to. Suffice it to say, Paul was profoundly devoted to serving Christ and advancing the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel. So much so that even Christians have a hard time comprehending all that he gave up in order to do this work. In a city like Corinth, obsessed as it was with wealth and prosperity, he was a spectacle, an oddity that people didn't understand. So he tried to explain, to persuade them to understand why this Savior was worth losing everything else. He's worked to persuade them, and he says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. To give them a glimpse of how it is possible for someone to have so little, to suffer so much, to have such a humble life, and yet have so much joy. It seems crazy. And love for them, Paul wants them to know that it's not, it's not crazy. Because he knows that in Christ he's been given more than anything he might do without in this life. He knows that all the trappings of a good life, the things that these Corinthian Christians are obsessed over, were trivial compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And Paul appeals to what they've seen in him, the things that seem absolutely crazy, as evidence that his message is worth listening to. Third, Paul explains the very foundation of his life and ministry in verses 14 and 15. He writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The word for at the beginning of verse 14 is important. Paul is explaining that this is the basis or the the foundation on which everything else he said in this paragraph stands. All of his work in Corinth and everywhere else he's gone to preach about Christ, all of his work to persuade, to teach, and to reveal the truth and hope of the gospel, all of the suffering that he's endured, all the scorn he's received, all the hardship he's faced, all of it he's done because he is controlled by the love of Christ. Paul seems to be referring here to two different people, and through them both, telling the story of all of Christianity, which now governs his life. He says, one died for all, and therefore all have died. That, most scholars think, is a reference to Adam. Way back in the Garden of Eden, when he rebelled against God and chose his own way and brought sin into the world. God had warned Adam that to eat of a certain tree was forbidden, And that if he did, he would surely die, but he was tempted and came to believe that God was withholding something good from him and Eve, so they disobeyed and ate. And as a result, all who would come after them would be cursed with enslavement to sin, to the same temptation that God's way is not the right and good way. So through one man, death came into the world, and through him now all have died, which is why Paul wrote in Romans 5, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. And it explains why, despite all the progress and innovation and enlightenment that humanity has achieved, 
we remain as prone to selfishness and pride and malice as those who lived in antiquity. Sin, who, sin came into the world, corrupting everything and infecting every human heart and bringing death into the world. But, Paul writes, Adam also represented the promise of another man who would come after him. The man through whom God would bring restoration and life where there was death before. So just a few lines later in Romans 5, Paul writes, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the heart of the gospel. That though sin had corrupted every heart, every corner of creation, that though every person was bent inward on themselves and consumed with selfishness and self-righteousness, a second Adam came into the world. Just as that first Adam brought death to all of his descendants, so too does this second Adam bring life to all of his own. And he would do it by going to the grave himself. Paul writes in the last verse of our passage, he died for all, that those who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the basis, the driving motivation behind everything Paul has said and done in Corinth and everywhere else he's ever been. He is compelled by the gospel. Every choice he's made has been governed by the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ. This is coming from a man who previously had been working to silence the gospel and to kill or imprison all who believed it. Paul was a persecutor of the church before he met Christ, but now, because Christ died and was raised for him, he lives for Christ. He has loved these people in Corinth because Christ died for him. He has devoted his life to Christ even at the expense of earthly comfort, honor, and even marriage because Christ died for him. And he has joy in all circumstances, even in the midst of imprisonment or abuse, rebuke, or even death, because Christ died for him. The gospel, the message that in sin all stood guilty before God, their just judge, but Christ, in great love for his people, condescended, took on flesh, the very flesh of the people who had rejected him in order to take their place and die for them on a cross, is so transcendent and transformative that it makes all things new, even people, and they can see that in Paul himself. It is the good news that changes everything. Paul knows from experience that it is impossible to hear and believe that and remain unchanged by it. It would be like learning that you have a terminal illness, and facing the terrifying, devastating news that you have only months left to live. Of course, hearing that, you would instantly start to think about all the things that you've always wanted to do and never got around to. You'd think about your family and all the people that you love and how important these last few months that you have are. And you would await the inevitable day that looms over every waking moment that you have left. But that news would change everything from your perspective on life to the way that you live it. But then imagine that sometime later at a, at a checkup with your doctor, he, he comes in and tells you that your 
illness has miraculously vanished. They can find no trace whatsoever of what was wrong with you before and have no way of understanding how you're healthy now somehow. It's a miracle, they tell you, something that they just cannot explain. That news would change things even more. It would upend everything that you feared, all the dread that you felt and had been living with. This is the way that the death of Christ, which we share in, and His resurrection, which was for our sake, changes everything. More so. It's an exchange of a death sentence, not just for a clean bill of health, but everlasting, unburdened, joyful life that nothing can diminish. This is the love of Christ for Paul and flowing through Paul that presses him compels him to press on in Corinth, and he wants these people to know it, not because he wants their applause. He's walking this fine line, telling people that they they must listen to what he's saying because he knows God's judgment is real, and he cannot abide a flimsy, half-hearted, incomplete gospel being preached among the people there. His commitment to them reminds me of a famous quote from the English preacher Charles Spurgeon, who wrote that, "'If sinners be damned,' at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unprayed for or unwarned. Paul is giving his life for the people of Corinth and other cities just like it. He cannot bear to see these people turn from Christ without doing everything he can to stand in the way of their flight. And in that way, we see how this passage shapes our own understanding of what it means to live and do ministry today. Like Paul, we are facing a situation in which the gospel is challenged, in which material wealth and social hierarchies and comfortable self-governed lives are prized as ultimate aims in which a sincere commitment to Christ is such a drastic departure from many of the cultural values around us that it makes Christians look crazy to everyone else. So the challenges are similar. Like Paul's context, Christianity today is viewed with more and more suspicion. In the last few decades, many in the West have begun to question whether or not religion in general and evangelical Christianity in particular is doing more harm than good in the world. Up until the second half of the 20th century, even though religious affiliation and practice were already in decline at that point in the West, Christianity was still thought of as a net positive for communities, families, and society at large. But in recent years, that generally positive, though just disengaged view of the church has gradually been replaced by questions or even outright accusations that religion in general, and more specifically evangelical Christianity, is a liability for society that really only causes hurts and divides people and deceives people. Rather than seeing Christianity as harmless or perhaps even a generally positive influence on the world practiced by those who need the comforting reassurance that it represents, we now often hear that Christianity is a hostile, backward, partisan, repressive, judgmental, and damaging force in the world that we would just be better off without. Polling indicates that at the beginning of this millennium, we reached a significant milestone in Western culture. 
specifically here in America, where now 51% of Americans think that religion is part of the problem rather than part of the solution for the issues that we face as a country. Like Paul, we are faced with a situation in which the gospel is not esteemed, and working to share our faith is an uphill battle. And this passage helps us, I think, to think about how to approach such a a daunting challenge. It's worth noting, first of all, that there is quantifiable, measurable data that proves that theism and, and Christianity specifically is a power for good in the world. Studies have been published which indicate that church attendance is correlated with better mental health, significantly increased care for the poor and homeless, higher rates of charitable giving, both to Christian and secular agencies and nonprofits, higher rates of orphan care and adoption, care for women and other marginalized people groups, and happier, more committed marriages, among a litany of other impacts. That's not, of course, to suggest that the church is without its flaws. It is full of sinners, so there are scandals and moral failures and failures to love and serve well, and other problems that prove that Christians are still being sanctified. But it just isn't true that religion, and Christianity in particular, causes more harm than good in the world. But Paul doesn't quote statistics or studies or empirical data. When faced with the challenge of reaching people who had written him off and written off the gospel, he wanted his life to prove that this message was worth hearing. His first defense and his best apologetic was the way that the gospel had transformed his heart, his mind, and his life. For most of his life, C.S. Lewis thought of Christianity as unappealing and its arguments unconvincing. He knew all the logical proofs that had been presented. He knew Aquinas' five ways to God. He had read books on apologetics and understood the arguments. And as an intellectual and brilliant man, he remained unconvinced. It wasn't until years later, well into adulthood, while reading the poetry of passionate and sincere Christians, that he began to wonder whether there may be something in the message of Christianity that is worth considering. He would later write that it wasn't logical arguments, but the expression of Christian joy that baptized his imagination. It wasn't until after that had happened that he began to seriously consider the logical proofs and apologetic arguments that he had dismissed for so long. And I think as we read this passage about Paul's ministry in Corinth and his commitment to see the gospel take root in that city, I can't help but think about my own hope to see the gospel take root again here in New England. Sophisticated apologetic arguments have their place. Scholarly study and analysis has its place. But the best proof we have for the gospel's legitimacy is the way it transforms the lives of those who believe it. People in pain need to see the lives of Christians and that the gospel gives them hope. People who feel alone need to see the way that the gospel proves love and creates community. People who feel angry over hurtful things that have been done by others in the, in the past need to see the way the gospel demonstrates God's forgiveness of their own sin. People who, makes, who make idols out of career or wealth or anything else in this world need to see the way that the gospel and Christ can satisfy our hearts like nothing else, even if all of those things are lost. Paul lived in a, in a way that proved 
His deepest concern was not for material wealth or honor or fame or comfort. Everything from his, his clothes, his work, his perseverance amid hardship and suffering, and even his decision to not get married demonstrated that he wasn't motivated by what this world could give him. And it proved, it proved that he had found everything he was looking for in Christ. A couple weeks ago, a longtime ESPN reporter and NFL analyst named John Clayton passed away. And in an article that was published just a couple of days later, a colleague of his noted that there were two things that defined John Clayton's life. His whole life could be summarized in these two things, love for his wife and love for football. And reading that made me wonder, how would someone summarize my life? What would my one-sentence eulogy say? What would people say defined me? For Paul, it was the gospel. The love of Christ compelled him in every way. When our neighbors and our co-workers and family members consider what rules our hearts, captivates our minds and governs our lives, what testimony will they hear? What the people of Corinth needed most and what our neighbors need most is to hear about the love of Christ in the lives of those who are compelled by the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in your love for us this morning. In Christ, you have shed your own blood to redeem us, to cover our sin, and to make us your sons and daughters. And as we stand before you now, we know that it is only by your grace. Captivate us, Lord, with the gospel, so that we rejoice in it even if all else is lost. And make our lives a testimony to your grace and your glory. We ask these things in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen.